I want to tell you a story as we begin our class this afternoon, but let's pray as we do. Father, this is our last class for the afternoon, and I pray that you'd give us wisdom, enable us to really uh, grasp how we can better integrate physical, mental, and spiritual modalities together. We sense that in the ministry of Jesus, the gospel of healing and the gospel of health and the gospel of salvation, which is health and healing, were never separated. And so teach us to walk in the footsteps of our master and to make these integrations, we pray thee, in unobtrusive ways, in ways that we can um, not be offensive, but we can break down prejudice and we can see hearts and minds open. In Christ's name, amen. Tini mentioned that we live in a community, it's a gated community in Dominion Valley, Haymarket, Virginia, and we are just in the process of building a new church, a new community health center, and a new uh, evangelistic training center there. Our target audience are pastors in our training and physicians and leading lay people. Our curriculum will be about one week a month where we'll do eight-day intensive classes. And we're building an 18,400 square foot facility. We started by faith. It is a $4 million project, and we started with no money. And God is doing some just amazing things. We're $600,000 short right now. And we've raised about $3.4 million. And the Lord has just worked miracle after miracle. Tini is running a 26-mile marathon to celebrate her 70th year of life. She won't mind my telling you, she'll be 70 years old on December 4, and uh, she will run her marathon, her first marathon, 26.2 miles, on uh, uh, January 25th. And uh, she's running that. I asked her, I said, why are you doing this? She said, three reasons. One, I want to demonstrate the health message in my own body. So she's training about uh, 10 to 12 miles, 12 miles a day, is that accurate? So she's out doing 12 miles a day now. Those are on the low days. On the good days, she does 15 miles or so. But how many miles a day do you do? You only have five point some? I only have 5.77 today already. But, but how many are you going to have by the time you go to bed tonight? Hopefully, That's all. hopefully 10 to 12. Okay, so she's averaging 10 to 12 a day. She very, very rarely does any less than 10 or 12. And so if you get up in the morning, you'll see her jogging. But I said, why do you want to do this? She said, well, first, for the glory of God, I want to demonstrate my own body that the health message pays off, because how can I teach health if I'm not active in my own life? Second, uh, I want to show in our health classes, and uh, you know, in our last health class, she jump ropes, and so I have her jump roping on the stage while I talk about exercise, and she jump ropes, you see. No, she actually talks about exercise, and so we didn't bring the rope here, or else I'd have you jump rope for them. Um, and uh, she said, thirdly, to raise funds for our new health evangelistic and training center. So people are sponsoring her so much a mile, and uh, we've got a, w a website, and it's really neat what's happening. You can see all about that on the website. It's really, really just kind of a, a very, very neat thing. And, um, but if you're interested in that, you can talk to Tini later. But we in our community started about a year ago, and I began various programs, and we had no church in the community. So 
uh, Dr. Michael Hansel from Southern Adventist University and I began to do, we want to do something in the community, so we started to hold some archaeological seminars. Our community is an upmarket community. It's people like to travel a great deal. And so I began to talk about Egypt and Israel and so forth. And we had a hundred people that were not Seventh-day Adventists coming. One night I was getting ready to teach. It was probably a half an hour before the course and a man walked in, suit and tie, very well dressed. And he said to me, his first words were, you're Mr. Mark Finley? Yes. He said, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are and I really need to talk to you. He said, before I tell you who you are, I want to tell you who I am. And he told me the most amazing story, and here was his story. He said, I came to the United States when I was 17 years old. And when I got to America, I had no education, I had no place to live, and I began to work in a little common job, and finally I bought a car and I was sleeping in my car. But in Washington, D.C. in the winter, it gets cold. So I said, where should I go to stay warm during the day? He said, I know, libraries, libraries. And so he said, I began to go to the library at a 17-year-old boy, and he said, I'd study from 8.30 in the morning till they closed at night, 9 o'clock, every day. Finally, I got acquainted with the librarians, and um, he said, I'd had a little job, I did some work, but when I wasn't working, I'd always go to the library. And finally, the librarians would let me sleep among the stacks of the books. And he said, I, I learned that you could take a GED test and you didn't have to go to high school. So I took my GED and passed high school equivalency. But then I learned if you want to do something in America, you've got you to gotta go to college. And you've got to go to college. So he said, I took my college entrance exam and passed with flying colors and got accepted at Harvard University. Because my scores and my, my college interests are so high. So he said, I took pre-med and then I took medicine at Harvard, graduated from Harvard University as a physician. But he said, that wasn't enough, so I went out and got a PhD degree. That wasn't enough, so I went out and got a master's degree in business administration. He said, then I became the uh, professor of medicine at Georgetown University. Now, he's sitting there telling me this story, and then he said, I've got a reason for telling you. Then he said to me, I said, I'm not doing enough for this society. And he became the president of the second largest community college in America today, 33,000 students, Northern Virginia Community College. So after he told me this story, he said, that's who I am. Now let me tell you who you are. He said, I don't know much about you, but everything I've read on the internet, you have the ability to motivate people. So I want to hire you. How much do I have to pay you? I said, sir, I want to work for you, but you don't have to pay me a penny, and I won't accept a penny. Tell me what you want me to do. And he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to come to my university and motivate my students to get better grades. I said, I'll do it. So I am a lecturer at Northern, Uni Northern Virginia University, and I lecture on how to get better grades exam week, but we're going to move that now for when the students come in. We're doing a little book on how to improve your grades. So when I walk out to the students, I walk onto the platform and I say, I'm here for one reason. If you're getting a D, I want you to get a C. If you're getting a C, I want to take your grades to a B, and I'm going to tell you how to do that. And so I begin to share with them. First, reduce the amount of sugar in your diet. And these kids are taking notes furiously. <laughs> Increase the amount of vitamin B in your diet. I said, now look, I'm not talking about your health so much. I want to get you better grades. 
Then I talk about studying for an hour and 45 minutes, exercising for 15 minutes. Then we talk about alcohol. And I looked at the studies on alcohol. Amazing. Harvard surveyed 150,000 college students across America. And they evaluated on a graph the amount you're drinking alcohol with your grades. Those students that are drinking, I think it's 15 drinks or more a week, are the D students and below. Those students that are drinking three or less drinks a week have a higher percentage of getting an A in their class. So we correlate. I said, you can do whatever you want. If you want to drink, that's up to you. I'm here to help you get better grades. And if you want to get better grades, we talk about coffee, its effect on the frontal lobe. And these students, I talk about spirituality with the students. And I will be very bold with them. I will say, now look, you may believe in God or you may not. I don't care whether you believe in God. I mean, I care, but I do. But if you don't, that's okay with me. But this is what I want you to do. Whether you believe or don't believe, I want you to pray before you test. It's going to help you. You don't have to believe. All I want you to do is pray before you test. And those students, how could I, in a public evangelistic lecture, get 100 of the top thinking university students with the auditorium free? They, they serve food to these students, and then they invite them to come to hear me lecture. And it's amazing what you can do. You can integrate physical, mental, spiritual. And one of the things I've discovered is the university students want it. Their minds are open. I was lecturing, and one girl came up to me later. She said, you know, Pastor, psst, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, I never saw her before. And, uh, and uh, you know, but you have these university students that are just open, receptive, and so we are coordinating with that. I want to share with you some of the material that I'm using with these university students and how we very openly uh, integrate physical, mental, and spiritual. So what I'm going to do is give you little snippets of three or four lectures that we use for them and for others. One of the lectures that we give is a lecture on the power of choice. And what I'm going to do is give you maybe six minutes of four or five lectures. I'm going to go really fast. I go much slower than this in the lectures. But it will give you an idea of integration. And you just get the concept. And once you get the concepts, it, it's, it flows in your brain. Tonight we're going to talk about, I'm making believe that you are a group not of Seventh-day Adventist physicians, nurses, and dentists, but you're my class, okay? Hey, welcome to class. I am so delighted to see each one of you here. Tonight we're going to talk about one of the fundamental issues of life, and that's choosing to live life at its best. Former President Ronald Reagan in the United States was, uh, tells the story that when he was a little boy, his mother was going to buy him a new pair of shoes, and she took him down to the shoe cobbler. And when he came there, the shoe cobbler said, Ronnie, do you want a pair of shoes with a pointed toe or a square toe? And Ronnie said, well, I can't make up my mind. You know, he was just a young lad. And so later that week, he saw the shoe cobbler again in town. And the shoe cobbler said, Ronnie, what do you want, square toe or pointed toe? And Ronnie Reagan said, well, I'm not sure. Uh, and the shoe cobbler said, don't worry about it. Just come and next week and get your shoes. He came to get his shoes, and he had one with a pointed toe and one with a round toe. And Reagan said, I learned right then and there that if you don't make your own decisions, somebody else will. One of the most significant things in life that our Creator has given us is the ability to choose. The ability to choose is hardwired into our brains by a loving Creator. See, I talk right, right from the start, right from the get-go, about a loving Creator. Some like it, some don't, but that's okay. Um, 
the ability to choose is hardwired into our brains by a loving creator. You know, it's interesting. The, uh, a dog has a 7% frontal lobe in the brain. A chimpanzee has 17%. A cat has 3.5%. But a human being has 33 to 38% uh, of the frontal lobe of the brain. Now, if you're going to make positive choices in lifestyle change, if you're going to implement exercise and good diet, it's necessary to understand how those choices are made. And there's really three counselors of the will. Um, you know, the will is the governing power in the nature of man that brings all of the faculties under its sway. But there are three real counselors of the will. There is judgment. And judgment says, this is advisable. This is wise. Judgment evaluates the wisdom of a decision. Reason evaluates the facts of a decision. It says, this is factual. This, this, is, this is good for me. You know, reason will go like this. If I continue to smoke, the possibility of getting lung cancer is extremely high. Therefore, it is not reasonable for me to continue. Uh, reason will say, if I continue to eat a high-fat diet, it's likely that I'll get plaque in my artery. Therefore, that's not reasonable. So judgment says what's advisable. Reason says what's reasonable. Conscience says this is not ethically correct. This is not morally correct. Uh, conscience has to do with what's, what's right or wrong. So if you want to make positive decisions, you, you consult the counselors of the will, which are conscience, reason, and judgment. So I'll usually spend a little time on that. And uh, that always leads us to choice. And uh, choice is that ability to make positive decisions. Now, choice is a gift given to us by God at creation. Um, and you remember the story of creation. And right here, I tell them the story of creation in the context of choice. And we talk about the fact that love can never be forced or coerced. We go back to the Genesis story of the tree of life. And uh, here is a wonderful transition. It's the first text that I'll use in a lecture. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you'll surely die. And then I say, what, what's the story about those trees? So let me explain it to you very simply. The tree of life represents all that was good, positive, healthy, and life-giving. So when you think of the tree of life, uh, I want you to think of an image that God said, I want you to make good choices, positive choices, healthy choices, and life-giving choices. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's that? I want you to think of that this way, that that's the sum of all poor choices with their negative, unhealthy, and life-destroying practices. So every one of us have one of two choices. We either make choices in life for those things that are good and positive and life-giving, or we make choices that are poor, that have to do with negative and life-destroying practices. Now let's look at some of the research, scientifically, that's been done of what happens when you make good choices and poor choices. So the choice in the garden, what, what happened then? And then I go into that, and we talk about the uh, scientific aspects. So I go back and forth between science and spirituality. I don't try to bridge in other programs. Now, we'll do our nutrition classes, our stress management, but this particular series leads people to see in one package. So after I've gone through this choice thing, I'll spend a lot of time now on positive choices. How can you make positive choices in diet? How can you make positive choices in exercise? And we look at genetics, and uh, are we doomed to die because of our genetics? What relationships do genetics have to choice? And that's the rest of this first lecture. Um, I'll share with you a lecture on rest. This one is called Rest Assured, Discovering Lasting Inner Peace. And um, 
Rest we talk about as a gift of God that restores our bodies, invigorates our minds, and stabilizes our emotions. So we'll talk a little bit about rest here. I go into a UC San Diego psychiatry study of 100, should be 1,000, that slide needs to be corrected, 100,000 adults found that people live the longest report they sleep six to seven hours each night. Researchers at the University of Warwick and University College in London have found that lack of sleep can more than double the risk of death from cardiovascular disease. So rest is incredibly important. Professor Francesco Capiccio, uh, the University of Warwick, says short sleep has been shown to be a risk factor for weight gain, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. So if you're not sleeping well, it makes a difference. Now here are some sleep difficulties closely associated with very psychiatric disorders. People that are not sleeping well are more likely to be depressed, be involved in alcoholism, bipolar disorder, growth suppression, their immune system is impaired, type 2 diabetes is much higher, they are much more likely to have a risk of obesity, their risk of heart attacks is higher, their reaction time and muscular pains and tremors is much higher, they have a much greater ability to be irritable, have memory loss, and impaired, impaired moral judgment. So if you're getting lack of sleep, it's incredibly uh, effect, uh, affects the entire body. There's some very amazing studies on sleep in the immune system. There's a 20% decrease in white blood cell count. Of course, the white blood cells are the cells that uh, uh, build or detract from our immune system. There's a 20% decrease in white blood cell count after 24 hours of being sleep deprived. This is incredibly significant. Have you ever noticed that if you've been really pushing yourself, you're, you're up a lot in the evenings, that uh, you're more likely to have flu or colds, etc. Sleep loss impairs immune function and immune challenge alters sleep. And so the immune system and sleep is, is incredibly important. Now species with longer sleep times have higher white blood cell counts. If you take some species of animals, they have longer sleep times, their white blood cell counts will be higher. One of the reasons why people don't sleep, and, and that is just a short part of the lecture, I spend a lot of time there on um, sleep debt and its effect on the entire body, but we come to a section we talk about stress and anxiety and how that creates restlessness and the more stressed you are, the least ability you have to rest adequately and sleep adequately at night. More than 40% of all Americans sleep less than six hours a night. Um, and we talk about that and why. But how can, how can you find good rest at night? And so I go over how to get sleep patterns. You do a moderate exercise in the evening. You, you take a warm bath and tell my own experiences in taking a warm bath. And after I've been lecturing, we go out and walk. And we take a bath. We read some. But I say, you know what helps me is resting assured in a loving creator. People that have a strong faith seem to do much better in their overall coping abilities, reduce stress, and therefore sleep better. For example, Dr. Herbert Benson, MD at Harvard University, says faith can reduce anxiety and blood pressure. So if you're reducing your anxiety, you're reducing your blood pressure, you're going to sleep a lot longer. Um, Herbert Benson goes on to say our genetic blueprint has made believing in an infinite absolute part of our nature. We are wired for God. So we're wired for God. So if you want to reduce the amount of stress, then tap into this sense of God. Tap into this one that can reduce the stress and anxiety. I like what Augustine said, Lord, our hearts will never find rest until they find rest. Where? 
in thee. So there is something about resting in our creator. Dr. Harold Koning of Duke University studied the relationship on faith and depression in people over 55. And his research was published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. Among depressed patients, depression severity was associated with lower religious attendance, less prayer, less scripture reading, and lower intrinsic religiosity. So if you want to reduce stress, reduce depression, uh, probe the spiritual in your life. I'm offering you the spiritual tonight, uh, not merely so you will be more religious, but so you'll reduce your stress, you'll reduce your anxiety, you will be able to sleep better and have better overall health. In summary, Dr. Koning said, older medically ill hospitalized patients with depression are less religiously involved than non-depressed patients or those with less severe depression. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can rest in his love and rest in his care. Um, so that's one we do on rest. When we do on rest, it's in that lecture that we'll introduce the Sabbath. And um, we talk about uh, circoseptum rhythms in the body. Some amazing studies that are, are, at least were new for me, about how the body functions on cycles of seven. And it's just incredible stuff. You know, when it comes to immune system, when it comes to, I'm not, who am I talking to? Physicians? You know this stuff already. But anyway, circoseptum rhythms were just amazing to me because when I began to study them and some of the new research on uh, the regulation of uh, body fluids, the regulation of chemicals in the body, the weekly cycle is built into our system. It's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. And so I show them that research, and they sit out there, and they say, wow. And I said, that's why the Sabbath is so significant. Because as you rest on Sabbath, you're repairing your body. And, this, and then we go into the, the Russian system and how the Russians under Stalin for six years had, uh, for 12 years rather, had only uh, a four-day-a-week work cycle because Stalin wanted people to work all around the clock. And so we had somebody working every one of the four-day work cycles and how that broke down the system. We look at the French Revolution and uh, how they shifted the work cycle to a 10-day work week and how, the how even the animals refused to work and the people were breaking down with nervous breakdowns. We tell them how built into our body is this Sabbath cycle of rest. And uh, so we look at the Sabbath from an emotional, physical uh, standpoint here and uh, in the lecture on rest, and we go into it there. When we lecture on exercise, um, we talk about diet and exercise, and we, then I go into the point and I say something like this to them. I say, you know what? You can exercise and add four years, five years, six years more to your life, but you're still going to die. So have you ever thought about not only exercising your body, but exercising your soul? How do you exercise the soul? What does the Bible say about exercising the spirit? Well, the Bible says walk in the spirit. So let me talk to you about taking a walk in the spirit. The Bible says run the race. Let me talk to you about running the race of life. And, uh, you know, all races are going to come to an end. And then I go down through here of how races come to an end and how matter how healthy you are, your life's going to end someday. And we talk about the fact that um, this race we call life is going to come to an end. And, Record-setting achievements gained at so great a price or a vague recollection in the distant past. And uh, we talk about whatever achievements you have, they're all going to be gone one day. When the race is over, when we cross that final finish line, the only one thing that's going to matter, have we made a total commitment to Christ? And so I openly talk to them about spirituality at the end of the race, and we talk about reaching for an eternal crown. And 
every two years, the Ishmacian Games were part of the Greek Olympiad. They were held in honor of the Greek god of the sea, Poseidon. And uh, the Victor's Prize, and we talk about that and give them the background, would fade one day. The Victor's Prize under the Greeks was a crown made of woven laurel leaves. Later, it was a crown of wild celery. But after Corinth was conquered by the Romans under Julius Caesar, the games were reestablished for a time with a crown of fur as the Victor's Prize. And so I go into this. And, all these crowns of victory for winning the games were fragile, and they quickly began to fade. They wanted to be the best, the fastest, the strongest, the most agile people in the world, and they wanted that crown upon their heads at the end of the day. The crown that was awarded to them was a symbol of the fleeting moment of victory and popularity that they were to enjoy. Do you not know those who run in a race, the scripture says, all run, but one receives the prize. Run in a way that you can obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered at all things. Now they do it to attain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. The crowns of a good job, a higher education level, a better lifestyle, more wealth and possessions, fame, fortune, power, and praise of men are nothing more than perishable crowns that fade quickly and are forgotten by all. I have business people coming, university students, and they begin to go through these kind of lectures. See, we're not trying to bridge. We're trying to integrate. We integrate in a lecture where we've took, given the latest scientific information on health and healing, and we talk about tomorrow we'll go do this and such and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow for what's your life. It's even vapor that passes away. And talk about a cathedral in Milan, three doors. One door on the right says all that vexes you is for a moment. The door on the left says all that pleases you is for a moment. And the door in the center says, that which endures is eternal. That which endures is eternal. There's one thing that's going to count. The most important choice we make in our lives are those choices that will last for eternity. And so I go through that. That gives you an idea of it and uh, what we're doing there. We raise the question, what crown are you chasing? What reward are you seeking? You know, what, what really are you seeking? Um, nutrition. We talk about a diet for spiritual health. I've spent a lot of time at the beginning of the class. We're talking about the latest in nutrition, cutting-edge studies that are taking place in nutrition. Then we come down to the end. We're, we're working through the class, and we're weaving spiritual principles. But I, I might say something like this to the class. I might say, you know what? Let's suppose you reduce your risk of heart attacks. You're still going to die of something someday, right? We've talked about nutrition for the body, which is so vitally important. But you know, human beings are physical, mental, spiritual, and, 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 and emotional. What about nutrition for the inner person? You know, what about food for the soul? And uh, let me share with you some things. You know, it's interesting what Jesus said. You know, whatever you think about Jesus, he said some incredibly amazing things. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by Mrs. Finley's whole wheat bread alone, but by every. No, I mean, Jesus said, Man shall not live by. Bread alone. If Mrs. Finley would have baked bread in Jesus' day, he would have eaten it, and he would have given it to his disciples, I'm sure. But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus talked about the deeper needs to satisfy the, the hunger of the soul. You know, the Bible's still the world's bestseller today, with 83 million copies sold every year, and Americans spend $2.4 billion on Bibles in 2006. It's interesting to notice how some of the world's greatest men and America's greatest leaders um, believed in, in the truthfulness and the moral principles of the Bible. The Barna Research Group said 93% of all households in the United States own one or more Bibles, but only 12% read the Bible every day, and 57% don't read the Bible at all during a typical year. 
Um, there are some eternal truths that I want to share with you about God's word. Uh, first, God's word is eternal. It speaks to every generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. There, there are principles in this book that are, are life transformational. The grass withers, the cloud flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So, so what the, 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 the word of God stands forever. You know, we look at computers and uh, everything around us ages so quickly. Era unknown command, I think I need an upgrade. You know, constantly people are trying to upgrade their computers. You get a new computer today and it's out of date, but there's something about this word of God that is still speaking to people's hearts today, something that um, speaks to every generation. In a world of rapid change and uncertainty, we need something that's eternal. Wouldn't you agree with me that the foundations of society are shaking? The things that you once knew 20 years ago, you don't know if they're true today, that the very moral foundation of society is crumbling, and would you agree with me today that, um, that we need something solid, that something that's unchangeable, something that we can really count on? I'm interested in Bernard Ram, a PhD professor of religion and philosophy. He said, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone in committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knife sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or classical or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible? With such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition, upon every chapter, line, and tenet, the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. George Washington made an interesting statement. He said, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. He is worse than an infidel who does not read and acknowledge his obligation to God. Thomas Jefferson said, I've always said and always will say that the studious pursuit of the sacred volume will make better citizens, better farmers, better husbands. The Bible makes the best people in the world. John Quincy Adams put it this way, my custom is to read four or five chapters of the Bible every morning immediately after rising. It seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. It's an invaluable, an inexhaustible mine of knowledge and virtue. Now, the principles of God's word guide and shape our lives today, and let me share with you how. Then I go into God's word as life-changing, and I begin to show them how the Bible changes your life. So I've talked about nutrition for about 30 minutes. It's about an hour lecture. The first part about nutrition for the body, then it's nutrition for the soul. And so Tinny and I have done some of this work together. We leave here Sunday to go to South America. We will have about 3,000 in our meetings down there, and... Uh, Tini will do nutrition demonstrations every night, and I will do lectures on health and spirituality every night. And we'll have 500 of the top leaders in South America. We'll have the union presidents, the conference presidents, all the leadership team there will be with us. And uh, we're sharing this material. We just translated this material into Spanish, into Portuguese, where we've got about, in this series, there are seven lectures in this particular series that deal with the big, great principles of health and um, lifestyle. But that's kind of the way we're doing it now. We're integrating a lot more, and we're finding some very significant things. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.